Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Caught up with JP Morgan's Bob Michael yesterday, had one thing to say to me, enjoy the ride. There's too much money in cash. It's been going into cash the last yeah. three years, waiting for the Fed to finish hiking rates. They were supposed to finish hiking at the end of this year, not last year. That money has yet to come back into this market. I want to bring in from London, Marcus Ashworth, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. So Marcus, has that cash moved from the sidelines and into equities? It sounds so cliche. Just walk me through it. Well, I think it has. I think there's, there's there's more to come, really. I mean, I appreciate what Tom's saying about, you know, why would you want to buy the high here? But uh, And we are close to that sell in May. We've got another week or two. It's come out to the month end, so there's a little bit of moving around going uh, probably out of equities today into bonds, which we've seen in the price action. But the simple point is the dollar is, is very, very strong. Why? Because U.S. equities are very high uh, and strong and going stronger. And why is that? Because the U.S. GDP is going to be a better print in quarter one than the market had initially expected. The cold snap, the government <clears throat> shutdown, yeah. that's passed. Now, compared to everywhere else in the rest of the world, U.S. Right. economy, U.S. equities are better than ever. Okay, Bill Marcus, you are an expert at this, and you wrote an extremely important uh, essay last year on asset flows. I don't have it in front of me, but I remember it was a jewel. The bottom line is the Central Bank of the United States reversed course. They've gone all dove essentially, with price uh, with rate cut stability forever, and that's moved all money to all assets at all times. How does that end? What's the history of how a central bank-driven move ends? Well, I don't think it, the point is, is that uh, if you listen to Clarita, that Fed is absolutely on hold. That means that the big risk has gone, as you quite clearly stated there, the Federal Reserve hiking has been removed and quantitative tightening is also about to be removed. Brexit isn't happening for a bit. Oil is going better at the moment. There is enough momentum behind the market that if, with nothing else to do, you want to put market uh, money to work in the market. And that's what's happening. The Fed is not going to hike rates for this year and possibly next year. And the next move may well be an ease. So that is an incentive to get on board. And that's simply the lack of anything better to do Yes, there's always risks out there, but money needs to be put to work, and that's what it's, what's happening. Well, that's the message coming from a lot of people over the last few weeks. And let's be clear, it's been the right message because the price action has proved to prove that out, to, uh, to go higher on the equity market for spreads to grind tighter on high yield as well. But Marcus, the call on the dollar is a little bit more interesting for me. Strong dollar short over the last couple of days, but the truth is we've been stuck in a really narrow trading range over mm -hmm. much of the last six months. We can't seemingly sustainably break 112 on euro dollar, 112.09 as I speak. What's your call there? Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to say that the euro, you know, tried to bounce above 113. It's failed. It heads back down towards lower levels because the European economy is woeful and it's continuing to be woeful. There is no bounce in sight. There's a little bit of a dust production jump, but reality, you look at orders and forward-looking things, the European economy has got no good yeah. news, be it Germany, be it Italy, be it etc. So if you look at what's happening to the euro, it's weakening. Same time, so sterling, and it's all really down to dollar strength. Why is that? Because the quarter one GDP number on Friday is going to be strong. Marcus Ashworth, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate Marcus, your perspective here. S&P out to record high and a few other indices.
Joseph Stiglitz of Columbia University, the Nobel laureate. He is the liberal that conservatives love to hate. Of course, he changed the language of economics a I decade thought that was or two. Paul Krugman. Okay. No, no, they, no, 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 no. Krugman, we like, we Krugman like, can't tie we Stiglitz. Like Stiglitz. Krugman can't tie Stiglitz' shoelaces. No, but I thought Come Krugman on. was the liberal that conservatives love to hate. We like Professor Stiglitz. We do? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Anyways, Joe Stiglitz out with a new book, People, Power, and Profits. And there's like thinner Stiglitz books and there's thicker ones. This is a major effort by you. Clearly you're doing it because of the time of Trump. But what was the catalyst for you to write People, Power, and Profits? Well, the catalyst were two things. One, uh, we had these festering problems, growing inequality. I'd written about that. And after I wrote about it uh, back in 2012, the problems got worse and worse. And now they've risen to the top of the national agenda. But what worries me is we don't have a deep enough diagnosis of Well, that's well said, well said. And what to do about it. And the, if we don't do something about it, it's going to really right. tear apart our country. And the book with 100 pages of footnotes is that diagnosis type of book. I should point out, John Farrell, Krugman of CCNY, the laureate as well, says Joseph Stiglitz is an insanely great economist. There that we from go. Krugman is as well. I want you to speak to part of our audience that's conservative. They don't like liberals like you. But they're miserable. Their kids are miserable. Their grand, maybe it's their 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 parents are miserable with with medications, whatever. Speak to conservatives right now about why they need to read your book and start to think like liberals of another time and place. Well, if we go back, say to the years after World War II, America was in that at that moment creating the first middle class society. Everybody thought of themselves as middle class. And we were uh, investing a lot in our roads. We were investing in education. Uh, Sputnik uh, motivated us to uh, government to invest in R&D. And that put us on the way to becoming the undisputed global champion uh, in so many uh, areas. Uh, Beginning around 1980, I think we lost uh, our course. Uh, we adopted a doctrine that the market will solve all our problems. Uh, it didn't. Uh, what it did is lead to actually slower economic growth, and all of the benefits of the growth went to the top 1%. And that has meant that that middle-class lifestyle that I talked about before mm-hmm. has fallen out of reach of an increasing fraction of Americans. John? So, Professor, is this a critique of capitalism or a critique of monopolistic behavior and abuses of markets? Uh, It's a critique of late 20th century capitalism, uh, and it's a critique of early 21st century capitalism. But that's why I call my book Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent, because I think the market is the only way that you're going to deliver long-term economic growth, but it doesn't work with unfettered markets, markets alone. You need government there, collective action, people working together for at least two things. One, you have to curb some of the excesses, the excesses that we saw in uh, the run-up to the Great Recession, 2008, the financial sector, but also uh, the environment. You know, If we didn't have good regulations for the environment, New York City, Los Angeles would be as unbreathable as Delhi and, and Beijing is today. But the second thing is 
you need government investment. Investment for infrastructure, for education, for R&D, basic research. Not all the research, but the basic research, uh, the discovery of DNA, the discovery of the, yeah, like, the kinds of things on which everything else builds. You mean like fixing Terminal 5 at JFK? Something <laughs> like that. Joe Stiglitz with a major book. This is a thicker one, a deeper one. The subtitle, Progressive Capitalism for an Age of Discontent. The book is People, Power, and Profits. Joseph Stiglitz of Columbia at University. It is now time to speak with a famed investment strategist and equity analyst of higher stock prices. The economist Julia Coronado joins us with macro <laughs> policy perspectives. Julia, in any uh, level, you know, Abel Bernanke, Mankiw, whatever, the bag, which is the British one volume folks on economics in every beginning economics book, including Paul Krugman's wonderful two volumes. There's one chapter buried in the back, which nobody ever reads about linking economics into the stock market. Are they linked right, right now? Very much so. I mean, I think we've been in a financialized world for the last couple of decades, and it's something that the Fed has been catching up to. But clearly the rally we've seen has its foundations, the recovery, the rally back in the pivot by the Fed and other central banks uh, that pro provide some insurance against what yeah. has been a, a slowing global backdrop. Let me ask you the same question I asked Michael McKee and, and both of you informed in your unique ways. What happens when the message changes? What's the experience right. of what happens? It'll be a speech in Dallas. It'll be, right. Kapl it'll be Kaplan's fault or Powell's fault or that guy yeah. up in Boston's fault. What happens when they get that one sentence out there? Right, particularly when, as we watch the earnings season proceed, it's not all sunshine and roses in corporate earnings. So it's not a disaster, but we have... S&P earnings tracking around 4% right now for this year, which is a pretty subdued performance. So um, if you don't have the Fed sort of endlessly dovish, then there may be some disappointment. So it is sort of shaky <clears throat> foundations, I think. Um, the real backdrop is that growth is slowing and earnings are harder to come by in a late cycle with rising labor costs and a slower global backdrop. So um it makes next week's Fed in meeting that much more interesting. I don't expect the Fed to change its tone, but you've had some people even get a little excited about the possibility the Fed could cut rates. And I don't think that the backdrop we're seeing yeah. is conducive of that. And as Michael Kamiki mentioned, the spread in opinions now, Julia, is shocking. The the If you take a bell curve, folks, of forecasts, the tails are dominant right now with people looking for a better economy and rate rises and people looking for real stagnation and sluggishness. And even, as you say, Dr. Coronado, speculation of a rate cut. What's your right. call? I mean, I'm kind of in the middle. I think I actually do believe in a sort of soft landing, if you, if you want to use that phrase. I think growth is going to slow this year. Uh, I think inflation is going to stay subdued, so there's no reason for the Fed to hike necessarily. But I also think that the Fed's done enough through its pivot, and you've got Chinese stimulus now, that some of the worst-case scenarios are likely to be avoided. Uh, so I, 
I think that you know right. that that's going to maybe disappoint markets at times, but I think it's an okay right. scenario for the Fed on hold. Do American executives trying to prop up earnings and margins and get decent organic revenue growth, are they going to get help with a fiscal oomph, a fiscal stimulus, or the advantages of the tax bill continuing? I mean, we still have a little bit of a tailwind from the tax bill, but I don't think we should expect fiscal stimulus in this political environment. Um, In fact, we have a fiscal cliff coming up in the fall, and it will take all the political will in D.C. just to you know, eliminate that fiscal cliff, which right. would be a decline. Well, describe that. So describe the fiscal cliff. Describe that for us. So they passed a two-year increase in government spending, and it is scheduled to expire next fiscal year, which would mean government spending would fall back down to the prior level. And that would be, uh, you know, a, a decline in government spending. So the Congress needs to agree to at least, at a minimum, raise spending back up to where it's been in the last two years. So that's going to require bipartisanship and an agreement. That's uh, easy. That's, <laughs> that's a heavy lift. So I expect they'll get there because nobody wants right. uh, you know, a headwind like that. But to expect some kind of infrastructure package <clears throat> in this uh, political climate, I think that's just not going to materialize. One of the things for the optimists, I haven't talked about this in ages, folks. It's good to talk with Julia Coronado of Macro Policy Perspectives about his confidence has really held up pretty well. I haven't looked at Michigan confidence in a while. I'm going to take the Bloomberg chart back to 2006 and we right. exceed the confidence of 2006, seven that, that, yeah. that, that provides us with fed stability or even down the road, a rate rise, right? Yeah, that's, that's the very foundation of our expectation that the economy is going to hold up, is that the virtuous cycle between the strong labor market and consumer spending, and it doesn't have to be a 3% performance, that can, can, but that can pretty easily deliver a 2% performance. Uh, so you do have that virtuous cycle pretty well established. And with the labor yeah. market so strong, consumers are feeling better than they felt in a long time. It's been a long time coming when consumers actually had a little bargaining power in the labor market. You see that in the equity markets as well. Dr. Coronado, thanks so much. Julia Coronado, Macro Policies uh, Perspectives. Right now, the hydrocarbon interview of the day. Paul Sankey, Mizuho. Paul, it always is fun to see a bidding war and grizzled guys like you know, egos get in the way. Who's got the bigger ego right now? Oh, yeah, you said it. I mean, it's great. It's historic times here, Tom. And we've, as you know, we've had a tough three, four, five years uh, waiting for some of this value to be realized um, that we've seen in these deeply discounted oil stocks. So who's got the bigger ego? There's no question right here. It's Oxy uh, CEO, Vicky Holub, who says on this morning on her call that she is about to speak to shareholders, but under Reg FD hasn't spoken to any. Uh, I can tell you she's going to have some pretty tough yeah. conversations. Well, in your research note, and this is really important, folks, Sankey writing from a lot of experience on what kind of oil, what kind of day-to-day tactical business is it. Oxy really doesn't overlap with the Anadarko technological skills, do they? Well, you know, the former CEO of Oxy, Steve Chazen, really designed the company not to be offshore 
um, not to be in Africa. If you remember during Macondo, the stock was a big outperformer during the big oil spill because Oxy was very much onshore, U.S. onshore, Middle East. And to the extent that Anadarko is a very well-known explorer, which Oxy didn't do, but also in a massive uh, Mozambique LNG project in, in West Africa and Gulf of Mexico, there really isn't a good fit here at all, and, and people don't like the fit at all, whereas with with Chevron, you you do have an excellent fit. So it's, a, to say the least, a brave move by Oxy. So, Paul, if I'm a Anadarko shareholder and price aside, let's assume the price, you know, the kind of triangulates we get to, each uh, bid is fairly comparable. Which one do I prefer? Do I prefer Chevron or Oxy? Well, I think you certainly prefer Chevron stock here because obviously you've got a bigger, more credible bid from a bigger, more credible company in terms of you know the overlap, as we mentioned, with Anadarka. I think in, in regards to the higher uh, bid for Oxy, we, uh, but from Oxy, we've got to watch what happens to Oxy's share price. That's actually holding up now, I think partly because people think maybe Oxy did this to fight off Exxon. I'm less certain that that's the case. In fact, I doubt it, but that's certainly one market story is that Oxy uh, went after Anadarko rather than lose itself to Exxon. Um, you know, so essentially there's some tactical issues here as to why Oxy's doing this. But secondly, the chances are that the credibility of this bid is so damaging to the current Oxy management that the company now becomes in play itself, and therefore you buy Oxy wow. on the basis yeah. that it's going wow. to get taken yeah. over subsequent to this bid. As a former banker myself, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, picking up the phone and, and making the calls and trying to shake the tree. What other deals do you think are possible in this space, You know, given we have a bidding war here for a pretty attractive asset? Well, it's known that we've had management change at Pioneer, which is a, a shift back to, uh, to the previous CEO, Scott Sheffield. Uh, you know, he, he's pretty much seen to be dressing the company up for sale. We know in general that the Permian needs to be consolidated by the biggest players. So you have a number of players in the Permian who are relatively smaller but have very good acreage. We're talking about the Conchos, perhaps less willing to sell themselves to Diamondbacks, but then a whole raft of smaller companies. And people question why Oxy didn't just do a, you know, for the a less less risk, arguably, uh, same amount of money. They could have bought three Permian players and yeah. been consistent with existing strategies. So. Uh, but Permian is obviously right. the hot area. Paul Sinke, one final question. Within this hydrocarbon roll-up that you just described is maybe a what-if for the reality that we see right now, how much of it is oil-priced off the memory of 110 to 29 back to the glory of 74 Brent? How much is the price of oil link into the action we're seeing from executives? Actually, I don't think a whole lot, Tom. It's more the scale of the opportunity. Because this morning, for example, Oxy is talking all about the Permian and the attractions of the Permian as the primary driver of the deal. The other stuff is sort of you know an add-on that they feel they can do well with. There's a synergy element here on both sides. So essentially, you know, Anadarko has a famously lavish headquarters, the famous double-sized dancing stag uh, statue outside you know there's there's definitely a cost savings that can be done across the board here from managements that have wildly overpaid themselves i mean these managements are hated uh by shareholders for the amount they've paid themselves for not performing very well so essentially it's an industry that needs to be consolidated and cleaned up and the driver here is cost savings and um you know synergy improvements really very much like what we saw in the late 90s tom when you had you know struggling managements that, that had high costs and poor performance, yeah. and eventually the market takes them out, and that's essentially what's happening here. Paul, just real quickly, what does Chevron do here? Do they come back? 
Yeah, I think that the the, 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 the the deal has been so well received that I can see them adding a bit. The, the Oxy bit is not a knockout blow. I mean, there's a, clearly a fiduciary duty. It's also hostile, which is, you know, again, historically a very bad idea. I mean, the last hostile might be, uh, of this scale, might be Texaco uh, for Getty, which ended in the bankruptcy of Texaco. Um, but it's very unusual to go hostile. That's what makes this bid all the more right. remarkable. Yep. Um, but, you know, I think that they can take a look at Oxy's share price at Chevron, see how the shareholders uh, don't like yep. this deal on Oxy's standpoint, and then uh, right. and then maybe bump a little bit and get the deal done. Paul, uh, thank not you. a welcome bid from Anadarka's point of view either, I don't think. Paul, that was fantastic. Thanks so much for your context and color about this transaction. It's probably not the last we're going to hear about this deal. Paul Sankey from Mizuho Securities. We love having him on talking all things energy. And we have got an old-fashioned deal uh, war going on here. This is Bloomberg. digress right now from earnings. It's an annual visit and very important always for Bloomberg surveillance. They have always supported Bloomberg surveillance right from the beginning. The CFA Institute, I'm a member uh, of the CLAN, the Chartered Financial Analyst uh, Program. It is three exams. It's a little hard uh, to say the least. And we are honored that Paul Smith, uh, their president and chief executive officer, joins us uh, today. Paul, the CFA Institute, and I want to get right to the heart of so many younger people listening. The question I get as a CFA all the time is MBA or CFA? You get this 10 times a day. Yeah, I do. And it's a great question. And, and, and the answer, the honest answer is it depends. It depends where you are in your career and what you know you want to do. If you know you want to be in investment management, be a CFA. If you're still at the point of your career where you're not that sure and you want to keep yourself general and you want more of a, a, a broader-based financial mm-hmm. education or business education allied to a financial education, then MBA is but, probably your but, choice. The gentleman from Fuqua, please. Yeah, so uh, I went to Fuqua School of Business at Duke for my MBA. Like most, uh, like a lot of people in my generation, that was the route. Now yeah. I think there's, I'm sensing that there is a, a lot more demand for, or, or attraction, I guess, on the part of young people for the CFA. What have been the numbers in terms of people yeah. sitting for the test over the last you know, five or 10 years? Well, the last five years, it's gone from about 220,000 people sitting the exams in any one 12-month period to about 360,000 wow. today. Most of that is driven out of Asia, out of China and India primarily. Uh, here in the U.S., we have had growth, but it's it's pretty anemic. It's sort of, you know, alongside of the economy, really 1% to 2% per annum, that sort of thing. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think for young people, the payback is just quicker. Um, obviously, a CFA costs you maybe five grand if you fail one level, let's say, which most people do on average. An MBA is going to cost you multiples of that. And so um, there's that angle to it. Uh, I think the other thing which MBAs should sort of kind of think about is you can fail the CFA. No one's ever met anyone who's failed the MBA. So from a perspective of of what does it do for you as an individual, I think it says says in a way a little bit more about you than perhaps the average MBA might. I don't want to, you know, delay the program here or rip up the script, but can we talk about that question on Level 2 in 1997? (laughs) (laughs) That was a tough one. It was a tough one. I, 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 I won't waste our time on air on, on the, hilarious, uh, the hilarity of that uh, moment. Paul Smith, you are here for the Research Challenge. Full disclosure, 
I have had the honor, and I mean honor, of judging the CFA Research Challenge. And what this comes down to, folks, and this is really important, Tom Keene has never written a 12-page report on Disney. Paul Sweeney has in the real world. And Paul Smith, this is people that really, really, really want to be like Paul Sweeney, right? Absolutely, that's for them. Uh, And it's just wonderful, Tom. I mean, as you know, firstly, to be surrounded by all these kids who are 19 to 22 years of age who still believe in our world, in our profession, (laughs) haven't haven't become old and cynical. Uh, And that in itself is a real buzz for me uh, uh, to be with these kids. And and they are super smart, as you know, as an ex-judge. Um, really focused on uh, on what they can bring to our profession and they're our future. It's and this is really a, a global story. Yeah. I know you do that. So talk about the, the, the yeah. non-U.S. aspect. Of yeah, this. well, it's it's 900 schools from around the world. Um, and uh, I, I think about half of those have, are outside of the U.S. The final that takes place tomorrow will be two schools from America, uh, Moscow State University, um, uh, Lausanne University, uh, Ateneo from Manila, and then, as I say, two from the U.S. who are fighting it out today, two from the Americas, to be precise, who are fighting it out today in okay. New York. So we'll know tonight who those will be. So it's a wonderful it's a wonderful way of bringing the world together. The final is going to be going forward, always here in New York City. So for the non-American universities and for those yeah. uh, those students, it's a wonderful opportunity for them to come here come to, to, to meet yep. guys like you and to, to be part of the world's biggest financial system. Paul, explain this. Is in level four or level five CFA community adjusted EBITDA? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I think you you know I was I was listening. You had you had uh, Joe Stieglitz on earlier yeah, on, and he was talking. Okay. Yeah, well, but he was talking about he was talking about the the fact that uh, and and many others have done this over the last twelve months. Uh, how we need to reattach finance to a sense of purpose, and I think that's really. What we try and do at the CFA, that's our mission, is to say that there's a point to what we do, and it's to help grow the societies and the communities that we live in. It's not just to enrich ourselves. What's important here, and I mentioned community-adjusted EBITDA, (laughs) which is Paul Sweeney from WeWork and all the fancy new unicorn metrics as well. Paul, to be fair here, the CFA did a lot of navel-gazing in 2008, 2009, 2010 about how the CFA Institute and others got us into this mess, a la Stiglitz. We learned then. How better are we protected now in terms of transparency of what everybody's doing in the world of bean counting? Um, I I think the accounting profession has um, a lot of challenges going forward. I'm an accountant and a CFA, so like like a lot of Charter holders, we Our deepest we, we, sympathies. Yes, thank you. I'm a reformed or recovering uh, accountant, and I, I think the accounting profession uh, has a real challenge because so much of what the uh, uh, analyst looks at today is non-GAAP financial measures, and um, the uh, you were making the point earlier on about uh, financial technology and Netflix and all these companies that that now have balance sheets and value that is non-substantive. And how do we measure that as uh, a profession? Uh, I actually, for financial analysts, Tom, I sort of turn that into a positive, that I think that means that human judgment is back, um, that data is no longer king. What you need to do is to uh, use your head. And uh, but, but I think the financial accounting profession needs to catch up a little bit with the way the world works. Well, Tom and I spend a lot of time looking at the asset management business, and we know mm-hmm. that the 
just the head count in asset management is flattened down, at least yep. in the U.S. Yes. Um, you know, the, the move yep. towards a passive investing yep. index and things like that. What is, I'm surprised to still see or hear about the rise in the CFA yep. exam folks. Uh, where are they going? Right. Well, uh, well, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, the developing world into traditional jobs. So portfolio management, stock analysis, uh, you know, in the emerging market world, alpha can still be found okay. uh, for all sorts of reasons that we, we don't have time to go into, but, but that's for sure. So uh, traditional jobs are growing in the developing world, uh, in, the, uh, in the developing world. In, the, uh, in uh, America and in Western Europe, uh, people are moving much more into wealth management, private wealth advisory business. That's a boom area. Okay. Uh, clearly, that involves our members hugely because if you're an individual, a wealthy individual, you deserve someone yeah. who has a fiduciary standard and the technical and ethical ability to look after your money so right. wealth advisory in the west is a big business what time for one more question which which i think is important i was mentioning in a meeting yesterday and folks the cfa institute i use every single day in some kind of conversation and i was waxing on philosophical putting people to sleep about the value of the financial analyst journal and the academics that you're doing out of Charlottesville. Tell us the state of that right now. Right. Well, very healthy. Um, a new editor was appointed, uh, Heidi Rabashama, about 18 months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, she's trying to uh, continue to improve the FAJ and making it much more insightful to practitioners. I think there was a period maybe four or five years ago, Tom, where it had become... It got become, a little geeky. It got a little geeky. Way there was a lot of Greek, Greek letters. There exactly. was an awful lot of Greek in it, and yeah. people were, as you say, were using it as a sleep aid rather than as yeah, um, yeah. Uh, a professional development <clears throat> tool. Heidi's done a fabulous yeah. job um, bringing that back uh, to the practitioner. Wonderful. Paul so Smith. Revisit uh, it. Got to leave it there. Paul Smith, thank you so much. He is the Chief Executive Officer, the President of the CFA Institute, and a major shout out to William Gross and Abby Joseph Cohen, who uh, wrote there a few years ago. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.